So before we begin, let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, we just come before you and uh, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for your word was already shared. This morning, we just want to pray, Father, and thank you for your presence in our hearts, in our lives. We pray that you'll continue to work to draw us closer to each other, and that we may love each other as you have taught us, as you have showed us when you walk through this earth. Lord, your daily life, we just want to bless you, and we want to praise you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we have to begin with a very familiar verse, Psalms 133, 1-3. It says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. As the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So I want you to picture this in your mind, this anointing of Aaron, and this oil that is being poured on his head that is dripping down and running down, his garments all the way to his feet. And it struck me recently, again, what this means. Not only does it say how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity, but if you picture this oil running down to his garments, I think we could say that this is not a coincidence. It shows us that if this is truly something that we seek after and practice in our marriages, in our relationships with one another, is that this blessing flows down even to our children, the garments and to the feet of Aaron. So if this is the case... There the Lord commanded a blessing, even life evermore. And I think this is the picture that we see. It's that oil running down, all the way down to his feet. And if we are together with our wives, with our, in our marriages, in our relationships, it carries down to our children and even to people that we interact with. And as we know, uh, Jesus' prayer for his disciples, he says in John 17, verses 20 to 26, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. 
Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. So in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, it says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So, <clears throat> this prayer that he, uh, he prayed that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and that I in you, and they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So hopefully unity is something that we all desire, and we can see that it's something that's very precious in the sight of God. And we know it's very precious in the sight of God because it brings glory to his name. We see it, it shows the world a picture of what his heavenly kingdom is like here on this earth. A picture of what it looks like to have men, women, and children who have been redeemed dwelling together in love and harmony. A picture to the world of the power of Christ's redeeming love. And I feel part of the reason we go back to the Old Testament, that God gave all those laws and directives to the children of Israel was simply to set them apart, to differentiate them from the rest of the world. The whole point is to show forth a distinctive people, a set-apart people, people of the kingdom, people that are countercultural that counter Satan's kingdom at every turn, that are collectively raising up a generation that will do damage to Satan's kingdom and eventually pass that torch on to their children who will continue in the same battle. And we know it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should shew forth the praises of him who had called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When people come 
and they see a picture. Let's just say they come here and they see this. And they leave and say, well, if this is supposed to be unity and a representation of the kingdom of God, then I don't want any part of it. If people can say this, then might as well we go do something else and uh, go our separate ways. Because, in a sense, you could say we're actually, we are denying Christ, denying what we say we are and who we follow. Because if you follow someone, you obey what they say. That's very easy to understand. You can't just tell a person that I, I follow you, but I'm not going to do what you say. That's, it's, that would be, uh, even a child can understand that that's really not the case. Um, in Nehemiah, I want to go to Nehemiah and read uh, uh, an account there, the building of the wall. In Nehemiah chapter 4, I'll read it in the ESV. Um, he says, And when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah and Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, uh, Tobiah the Ammonite, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to have its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were being to, beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild a wall. And our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that, it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan. We all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half led the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leader stood behind the whole house of Judah. Who were building on the wall, 
Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn till the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. I'll stop there. As you can see, these men were building a wall. And as you can see, there was there was a lot of stuff going on to try to prevent them from building. You had some Balat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites that came against them. And then you had other Jews who also tried to stop them from building. Um, they said, come away with us. It says, you must return to us. And it said this ten times. So I picture this. It was a battle, just like it is if you picture a community. You have all sorts of attacks. And uh, there's no time, if you can imagine somebody just sitting around doing nothing and just being there. Um, you can't imagine this in this case because each and every one of them was needed to do something. And it seems like they came to the point where they had a brick in one hand and a weapon in the other as they were building. And it just reminded me that it still has to be like that today. A brick in one hand and a, and a weapon in the other. Because we see this world is changing very rapidly. It's encroaching basically on what we feel the word of God is teaching. The enemy is basically ramping up, um, you could say, the, the attacks and the building, if I think about it, what, what are we building? Building. We can, we can uh, understand the protecting. We are protecting our fellow brothers and sisters, our children, from influence, from, from doctrines, and from uh, the demonic you could say. But it is also just as necessary to build and to encourage, to, to protect the life of Christ in people, 
to build them up and to encourage them along the way when they face uh, difficulties, when they face these things. And it's astonishing that the walls were rebuilt in 52 days. Now, I don't know how thick they were, or how high they were, and how long they were, but 52 days is quite a feat. And we still have to remember, we have to remember that there is an adversary out there that is doing all that he possibly can to kill, to steal, and destroy anything that really looks like the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ. He is influencing and wheedling his way into people's minds and gives them desires that cause division and disunity. And uh, again, this was a group effort. Each had a brick in one hand and a sword in the other. Um, Now, we can say, well, why would God need our protection? Didn't he say to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? He did say that. But how does he build his church here on this earth? He builds through his sons and his daughters who have surrendered their lives to him. It is not that I set out my own to do things, but I allow Christ to work through me. And you do come to a place where you feel inadequate. And uh, you say, what do I have to offer? And I feel that's where Christ actually can use you the most. Um, where you do not depend upon your own mind and your own ideas of building and protecting, but you allow the word of God to speak through you. And a lot of times it seems we forget that Satan is the enemy that we should be fighting and not one another. We tend to start focusing on petty issues that soon become our main points of concern. And the weightier matters are often ignored or forgotten. And it's sometimes quite childish what gets us riled up. I have a short illustration here that I want to share. It says, on the day before the Battle of Trafalgar, Lord Nelson took two of his captains who were at variance, which means were arguing about something to a spot where they could see the fleet that opposed them. He says, yonder, said the admiral with a sweep of his hand, are your enemies. The captains shook hands and forgot their differences in the face of their common enemy. I think we often forget that. But our enemies are not within the church. Not that we should have enemies, but I think you know what I mean. People that we feel should not be um, or my life would be better without these people. Um, 
Yonder are your enemies. It is people that are blatantly against what we hold dear, what we call ourselves to be as followers of Christ. And we do know that if we live with people, people have problems. It is how you face those issues and those, how you deal with them that makes the difference. Also, another illustration, the Great Wall of China is a monumental structure which stretches 13,171 miles along China's northern border. It is a formidable structure meant to dissuade any would-be armies and raiding parties. But do you know how most of the time the wall was breached and the defenses broken? The guards were bribed to open the gate. And it's something to ponder on. Because <clears throat> I feel that as a Christian, I have a responsibility. I have a responsibility in a sense that you can open doors to the enemy that will not only affect yourself and your own life, but affect other people's lives. And uh, those things have a way of influencing others. And it could be something very innocent that we think would not affect others, but it does. And we could go into detail of a lot of these different things, but just remember that, that the Holy Spirit can be quenched. And the presence of God can depart from a people. And it's something that's, and a lot of times the scary part is that we don't even realize it, that the, the Spirit of God has departed because we just continue to do what we've always done and we think everything is okay. It's just, <clears throat> do we want something more? It's like Richard shared in the opening. Do we want God to actually take us on to new heights, to, to deeper, a deeper understanding, a deeper love for one another, a deeper uh, compassion, or a deeper oneness? Do we actually want that? Do our lives reflect that? My actions reflect that when, when I'm alone. There's another example of a unity in Genesis. Genesis chapter, one, um, chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, it says, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Go to... Let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven. 
And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of the earth. So as you look at this picture of this building of a city and a tower, you would most definitely say that they had unity and oneness. But to what end? What was it, what was it all about? It was the preservation of themselves from calamity. Because they, take it, they were taking it into their own hands to protect themselves and basically saying to God, we don't need you. We can make our own way. And it's interesting to note, it says, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. We, we do know that he, he sees all the time. There's nothing that he does not see and nothing that he does not hear. But I think it's significant that it does say this because it means that he was not present. He was not there. There's a verse in the Bible that illustrates this. In Psalms 127.1 it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. God was not with them. And I, the only way I can put it is God has no desire to be a vending machine in our lives. Which is basically the same mentality of when we need you, we'll know where to find you. And it's the same thing Brother Richard spoke about. Again, when we need you, we'll know where to find you. Um, make sure you're loaded, though. I mean, make sure the vending machine is full. And until then, yeah, we'll, you can just stay over there. And again, we can have a unity that looks good on the outside. It's actually for the wrong reasons. A unity that is for preservation, is for making things comfortable for ourselves. A unity that you could say um, separates us from other people. We don't want anything to do with others. 
have enough problems on our own. And this type of these ideas where we're simply building something that does not represent God's heart. Um, there are examples also in, that God put in nature of unity and working together. We can see it in ants, we can see it in bees, we can see it in trees. And the red trees in California, um, I've never seen them. Maybe some of you here have seen them, but they are of the largest living things and the tallest trees in the world. Some of them are 300 feet high and more than 2,500 years old. And with this in mind, you picture these huge behemoths, you would think that trees this large would have an incredible root system, a root system that reaches down hundreds of feet into the earth. But the truth of the matter is redwoods have a very shallow root system. But the thing is, their roots intertwine. They interlock their roots with each other. So when the storms come, the winds blow, the redwoods still stand. Because they have an interlocking root system that supports and sustains each other. They need basically need one another to survive the storms. So in Romans 12, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And going down to Romans 12, verses 9 to 18, it says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Very practical, very down to earth. And there's no riddle here. There are no riddles. We don't have to sit for days 
and figure out what this all means. Even little children can understand these things. And our history has been painful. And I won't go into any details, but it is definitely, we haven't been without our share of, of struggles and pain in this. Separations and church splits and things of the like. And when you look back, I'm sure that most of us could say we would do things different. There's an account in uh, of uh, Count Zinzendorf in a Moravian Brethren that I'd like to read. It says, in 1747, there arose differences and disunity among the Moravian Brethren, a group of local churches whose influence and missionary effort were widespread. Count Zinzendorf, with represent, representative elders, arranged to hold a conference at which the differing views on the subject of their controversy might be aired and discussed amiably, amiably among themselves. The leaders came, some from long distances, to the place at which the conference was to be held. Arriving on the appointed day, each prepared to contest the view he supported and confident that it would receive the acceptance of the majority. They arrived about middle of a week. In his wisdom, Count Zinzendorf proposed that they should spend some time over the word and in prayer and suggested a Bible reading. The book chosen was the first epistle of John, and they spent the remaining days till the end of the week becoming familiar with the teachings of that letter and learning that one of its main lessons was love for all the brethren. They agreed that on the first day of the week, like the disciples in the early church, they should come together to break bread, and in so doing were reminded that they, being many, were one body. The reading and study of God's word and the fellowship at the Lord's Supper had a very salutary effect on all. And the result was that when on Monday morning they commenced to examine the matters on which they differed, their differences and disputes were quickly settled, each bowing to the word of God and thus helping to keep unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I think it would be a good practice if it's done with the right heart. Because a lot of times we're so keen to bring out the faults, so keen to bring out our, our own views, that we, it can easily be, uh, you could say, that Satan could easily just, if you just focus on that, you miss the broader picture. you miss what Christ's heart is in the matter. And the enemy comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. But Christ comes to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So I want to go through a few practical things that destroy unity. And uh, sure, the number you will be familiar with a lot of these. But I think... um, 
there we need to mention them. And the first one I have is gossip or backbiting, which is simply church members talking about one another instead of talking to one another. And you could say, well, I myself don't gossip. I just enjoy listening to it. Um, it, it can be true. What is it about when you hear about a misfortune of a certain brother or sister in your heart that you feel that that person had it coming, that God is dealing with them? And I found most often than not in my own life that that falls on the wrong side of where Christ wants it to be. That kind of mentality, that kind of thinking falls on the wrong side of what Christ's heart is. And if we check our own hearts to see where we're at with a lot of things, we quickly find out that we are also a work in progress. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Number two is having our actions cloaked in darkness or deception. I don't know, I don't have to go into a lot of details with that because we all know what that means. It is this syndrome of living in our own bubble and simply thinking that what I do affects no one else. And why should this person know what I'm doing? What is it? What is, what is it? Why is it their business? In a sense, you could say that it isn't, but it still is. Because we are members one of another. And it does not mean that we share every aspect and little detail of our lives. But we all know a clear countenance a, um, when a person has a clear countenance and is walking in the light, it is like your wife. Um, I have found that you can live together and not share, but it's, it's not the best way. It is not the best way. <clears throat> Uh, but if you start sharing the things that you go through, you just find that it connects you in a way where you trust one another in a deeper way. You just, it forms a oneness where you know, okay, this person knows what I'm struggling with. This person knows what I'm dealing with. This person is uh, my help. And, uh, can help me through these things. And I've experienced it. 
I've experienced those things, things that I've just kept to myself, tried to fight through. And uh, as soon as I opened up and shared, someone shared in, uh, inside to help me through it. But I guess this is on a different... It's having our actions cloaked in darkness and deception. I guess I wouldn't call that darkness or deception. But they simply our own agendas is the best way I could put it, without input from others and not caring what other people's ideas are on the matter. And then we have the another one that I felt is a lack of prayer. Now, I know we do pray, but corporate prayer... I feel, has a way of unifying a group of believers. I know we've done it here before. um, And I I was blessed with it. And we see it in Mark 18, 19. It says, again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them, my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And we have fears of confrontation. Too many church members would rather sweep problems under the rug than deal with them. This creates distrust among members. And number six, we have having a critical spirit. The sin of fault-finding and being critical and tear up churches, marriages, and friendships. It turns molehills into mountains. It makes us become the type of people that Jesus was speaking about when he compared people with this problem to those that were trying to take a speck out of their brother's eye when they had a beam in their own. People who have a critical spirit are usually very negative about life and cannot see the blessings that God has given all around them. They're focused on the negative rather than the positive. A critical spirit. We tend to avoid people like that. And it can be very much part of our own lives. Just, I I notice it especially with my children. It's just a habit of always, always correcting and uh, uh, pointing this out. Clean up your shoes. do, Do the dishes. You know, it is this... It's not that it's wrong. It is simply, if this is the only thing that I say, you get this feeling, I'm never good enough and I'll never be. I can never please this person. That's, that's where I'm at with that. And it is okay to point out um, and to teach and to correct, but... It has to be balanced. It has to be balanced with something else. Um, Low expectations. Many churches have no clear guidelines on what it means to be part of the body of Christ. If you expect little from members, that's exactly what you'll get. And they use their time for other things. Um, Then we have clicks. Or power struggle, or or groups. It's very real. Um, it can be very real. 
And these things normally just happen automatically, happen along family lines. And family is just who you want to be with. I mean, it's, it's what you normally gravitate towards. But it is also something in your life that you actively have to go against. Because a lot of people see that. Um, unforgiveness and not caring about what other people feel. And we all know where that is at. It's, it, this is something that cannot be part of our lives. It says, therefore, if, you, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, there remembers that thy brother had aught against thee. Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, then come and offer thy gift. A way to um, counteract that is to spend more, spend more time considering evidences of grace in your brethren's lives than you do pondering their sins and weaknesses. Also, keep in mind or meditate on God's commands, especially dealing with that we love one another. It is actually a command. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. Be the first to seek peace and reconciliation. Judge yourself more than you judge others. Pursue humility. And now for unity, we know we don't all have to be cookie cutters to achieve unity and to achieve something beautiful. It says, like a piano, we need to understand that each one of us is playing a note. If only a single key or note is played alone, it soon becomes obnoxious to those who hear. If one key is louder than the rest, it also creates a piece where you only focus on or hear the note that is out of pitch or louder. If a key is not playing at all, then there is something missing from the song being played. To the piano players here, I'm sure you can understand that to try to play a piece of music at one key too loud or one key not working at all would cause you quite a bit of consternation and annoyance. So unity comes not through uniformity, but through each individual, as different as he may be from the others, turning his gaze steadily upon the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Unity comes not from a common language or nationality or race or color, but from a common vision and posture as we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord and bow the knee before him. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the end goal, you could say. This is where we want to come to. 
And there, on that final day, that's what's going to be there. That great multitude from every nation, from all tribes of people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. And those will have been the people that have shown forth his glory here on earth, have lived for others, that have lived in love and in unity, and that were obedient to the word of God. So hopefully we are this light that is shining brightly in a dark and dying world. So thank you all and God bless us and help us.